Okay, this morning we are on Hebrews chapter 11, and we were finishing our discussion on verse 12. I think I had a couple of cross-references that we didn't look up, if I remember right. It says, therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. And um, we were saying that this was an athletic metaphor, and it would be like a boxer that's already been going nine rounds. And uh, I don't know if you've ever, I have very rarely I've watched boxing, but I did. When I was a kid, they had it on, what was it, Friday night, Gillette Calvacated Sports? Anybody old? Yeah, you remember that? Oh, yeah. Friday night. Well, anyhow, what, what would be typical in this sort of a contest is that after they've been punching on each other for eight rounds, the, the, this is the way you would be. Weak, uh, straight, weak, weak hands and knees. You just, just don't have the knees anymore. You're out of, uh, energy. And so the, the metaphor is being applied here to the Christian life. And we have this group of Christians that, that are meeting here that are Jewish Christians. And the fight has been long and hard. And the fight they had was the fact that they were under persecution. It said in chapter 10, they'd had their their properties confiscated. They'd gone through all kinds of tribulations because of their faith. And the temptation was to get out of it the easy way. Now, the sermon's going to talk about this too, because of a similar situation discussed in Thessalonians. And the easy way out is just get, don't say, either go silent about your faith or renounce it or just go back to whatever it was you before, we were doing before, then those kind of afflictions, persecution, they all go away. Alright? And so, it was, it's as if they'd been in the ring for nine rounds, and their hands are tired and their knees are weak, and the easy thing to do is just throw in the towel. Alright? I've had enough of this. It's too hard. And the author of Hebrews is saying, don't throw in the towel. Strengthen the weak hands and, and, and gird yourself up for the fight because you've got to see it through to the end. And you have to uh, persevere all the way to the end. And, and this comes on the heels of all these warnings about apostasy that it, they would be lost if they walked away from Christ and went back into the world. Um, I'm going to pause my recording how does that work? Okay, I just told a story I didn't want on the tape for those listening. Um, it was a story about backsliding. Now, whatever happens, here's the, here's the uh, warning, and this is what it's in Hebrews, and this thing just brought back to me this problem of apostasy, is that I don't care what happens. I don't care how many people mistreat you. I don't care if you went to a church that wasn't right or um, you had a spouse that was abusive or you had Christian friends that let you down, or, or what anybody else did to make you miserable, it isn't worth it. Stay under the means of grace. You need your Christian friends. You need prayer. You need the Lord. You need to be accountable. You need to have people in your life that are going to say, what are you doing? Where are you going? How are you spending your weekends? What kind of life are you living? We need that. We need to strengthen the weak hands and the weak knees because if you see the result, when I saw the result, I, I, I just was like, the, the people were like alive and dead at the same time. That whole group of people. 
They just were dead. They had nothing. And they didn't know how to relate to me. They felt, I think they felt insecure that I was there. And I wasn't being judgmental. I was just listening. And I told them, we were there to tell stories about this person who died. And so I told the story of going to Mexico and stuff like that. But you know what? You need the Lord. You need the Lord. And we all do it. So, uh, dear ones, don't let that happen to you. I feel like i got to warn, warn us. I don't care what happens. Don't do it. Stay with the Lord. Stay under the Word. Stay in prayer. And stay with your Christian friends. Amen. And, and if you've got really bad ones that are teaching false doctrine, go somewhere and find good ones that are teaching true doctrine. Yeah. Don't just quit. Yes. I, I think you said to make a choice of who your friends are. Make a choice there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's what he's saying here. Okay? Because that's what this Hebrews is about. It's like, if these people here are my friends, I'm going to get all this affliction from the world. And I'm being held in account. That's even, even my own desires I have to uh, restrain. Because the Christians expect me to. So if you make a different choice and you go back to the other group, then you just, you're free from the restraint. But where it leads is the road to hell. And if some of you are younger, take this to heart. I'm, I'm, I'm saying to young people, it isn't worth it. It, it, it. I could get a whole bunch of people here stand up and tell you it isn't worth it because they did it. Yeah. <laughs> if you hear any more amens here. <laughs> it's not worth it. It's not worth it. It's the ways of death. And I would rather be... I, I just thought about... I'm 55 years old and I feel blessed because I've got... Uh, Pam, my kids still love me. My my grandson loves me. My wife loves me. My mom loves me. And all the Christian friends, I've got these people that are there for me. Because we shared something more than 20 years of parties. We shared a life together in the Lord. And that, that, that gets you to a different point. And it isn't always great. And it isn't always fun. And a lot of times it's miserable. And a lot of times people let you down. But so what? It's the people God gave us and we need them. So I wanted to. I had to get something redemptive out of that experience because it was, uh, it, it was just. I, w- I went out of there. I was just. I just felt literally sick. It's like, oh, and I also think, but by the grace of God, there go I. But it isn't any goodness in us that keeps us from it. It's the grace of God. And and and, you, and so then you have kind of a dilemma in some ways. Well, it's all grace, which I totally believe. But then we also have human responsibility, don't we? So how do the grace of God and human responsibility intersect? Well, what Ryan and I keep preaching is through the means of grace. If you are under the Word of God in prayer, in fellowship, and the things that God gave you, these are powerful ways that God will work in your life. And the people down at the bar aren't going to offer that. Diane. As Christians, we have to take some responsibility for where we are in our lives, too. And if we're not growing as Christians, we're going to be open to all of those things. And well, we have to, have to, to yeah. judge whether or not, you know, from where I am today, was I at a different place last year? And if not, why not? And going on and, and making sure that our life and our dependence on the Lord keeps increasing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was thinking the things that look good when you're young, pretty soon they don't mean anything. And it looks all so wonderful. And, like, you know, look at my dull life being a Christian and going to church and trying to raise kids that don't even appreciate me. But you know what? 
you're investing in the future will be different. And if you grow up and you get older and you've got a Christian family, it's more important than anything, even your real family, your, your physical family. You've got, and if you've got a Christian family, you've got everything. And if you've got a real family and a Christian family, you're very blessed. And I pray that we all end up with both, all right? Yes. I, I can testify to that. I feel a lot more close to most everybody here than I do with my own personal family because the description is what my most of my family is. Okay. You don't have anything in common that way. No. You end up with Christmas and Easter and see yeah, a yeah, you know, birthday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so the Lord makes all the difference in your life. So I want to encourage us in, in the Lord, and I want to thank all of you for your passion for the gospel and for your prayers. And I just felt... You know, I felt exceedingly blessed thinking about the contrast, but it didn't make me feel good. It made me sick because I felt so bad for the people that involved in the story that I heard. Yes. Uh, I think it, sometimes uh, it's good to see that kind of thing, though. Because I think in suburban, white suburban America, uh, we don't <coughs> see the results. We don't see the consequences and so we can take our, our uh, faith pretty lightly at times. Uh, but when you have these stark contrasts, and uh, you know, I worked 20, 26 years as a police officer, I saw all the dirt, the grind, the suffering, and like you said, the living dead. Uh, you know, whether it's alcoholism, whether it's uh, you know, sex addiction, it, you know. You've got to know that if you haven't got Christ, your life is headed for an open sewer. <clears throat> and, you know, we, we, we just aren't exposed to it enough. Uh, you know, even in a third world country, you would see the effects of, of, uh, of uh, the worldly system. And, and we've been insulated from it. We've been... Uh, kept separate from a lot of the disgusting, uh, uh, evil um, putrefaction that is in the world. And I think when Bob brings a, uh, uh, an example like this up, you know, we need uh, to know that uh, we have to keep pursuing Christ. And, and, and we're not uh, invulnerable to this stuff either. So we Absolutely. have to have a certain amount of wisdom. We can't get tangled up in it. We have to come out and be separate from it. You have to flee sometimes, like, like Joseph. Sometimes you just got to run, you know. Um, flee, flee youthful lusts, it says. Okay, so that was my real-life example. Now, maybe some of you right now feel like you're in the ninth round what if this guy just knocked me out and get it over with? Um, and so let's make it real practical. What, is, what does the Scripture say? If you feel like you're in the ninth round, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight the paths of your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint but healed. And so God is still interested in healing and um, bringing our lives back to the fervency that we had when we were new Christians when it was the first round. And we, and we knew we had come from darkness into light and it was exciting. It was the very first round of the fight and we felt like this is going to be great. And when you're young, I know you're naive. It's like, you know, oh, gee, I would never fail. I would never do that. I could, I'm going to be this great man of God. 
But, you know, we got to get that kind of enthusiasm. It would be great to have that youthful enthusiasm with what we learned over the last so many years. And I think we can have it in the gospel. You know, um, I think anybody that's older would say, I wish I knew when I was 25 what I know now. But you know what? You just don't. <laughs> but you do know what you know now. You may not have the physical energy, but we have the spiritual faculties to be in the battle of the gospel and, and be standing there for our friends and our family and helping the people with the weak knees and weak hands. And don't let it be out of joint, but pulled back together. Um, and so we get through all the way through however many rounds there are until the Lord returns or we go to see him. So this is about Christians losing heart in the midst of the battle. I had a couple of passages here. Why don't I just... Well, I'll, let's branch out a little bit. Troy, do you want to uh, do Isaiah 35, 3 and 4? And then Gina, Proverbs 4, 25 to 27. And then we want to recall Hebrews 12. So Kathy, if you could do Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 to get us back. Because it's been a few weeks since we were in those passages to remember where this all came from. So Isaiah 35, 3 and 4, I think, is probably uh, very similar material to what we're reading here. Okay. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Yeah, be strong because of the recompense of God. So this would be people under persecution that are thinking it's not worth to go through it. So one thing about that sort of suffering, you can get out of it real easy. All you got to do is renounce your faith. I'm not saying that's easy. <laughs> that's bad. It's very bad. And, and But that's why it's a temptation. If you don't stand up for the truth of the gospel, you won't be persecuted. All you have to do is keep your mouth shut and don't confess. You know. And so it says, don't worry, God is coming with recompense. There is a day of judgment. It's yet future. And on that day, if we stand firm, we'll be very glad that we did. And if we don't, we'll be uh, horrified that we didn't. Proverbs 4, 25 through 27. Do not be afraid of sudden fear, nor of the onslaught of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Do not withhold good from those whom it is due, when it is in your power to do it. Okay, and then um, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen. Run with endurance the race that's set before us, that we're going to run all the way to the end. I was a cross-country runner, and I know that there's a point where you want to quit. And uh, But the way you get to the finish line is you realize that Jesus is the finish line. And you fix your eyes on him, the author and perfecter of faith, and run with endurance because our eyes are on Jesus, and that's where we're going to land when we're at the end of the race. We're going to be in his arms. And he's going to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. So fix your eyes on Jesus. Run with endurance. It's a race. It's, it's a marathon. It's a whole lifetime. But there's a great joy to those who persevere. 
that's the message in the book of Hebrews, by the way. It's, it's a, I know I like to focus on details, so we're spending a long time getting through this book of Hebrews. But um, every once in a while I like to back up and get the big picture so we can get it all back into perspective, that it's really about perseverance and not committing apostasy. There's five warnings about apostasy in Hebrews. And so the message of Hebrews is Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. He's provided everything for us. His blood, once for all, was shed once for all to cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve a living God. He's made access into the holiest place. He ever lives to make intercession for us. He's the very creator God who has spoke to us in these last days. And he is greater than the high priest. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than any other being because he's the eternal God and of man. Fix your eyes on him because this is, that's what it's all about. And uh, run with endurance the race is set before you because the great glorious prize is ultimately to be with the Lord and with all his holy ones in eternity. And so that's the message of the book of Hebrews in a nutshell. And so as we go into the details and cross-reference and stuff, keep that in the back of your mind. I said that one of these times I'm going to preach through Hebrews in one sermon. And Keith said, well, warn us so we can bring a sack lunch. <laughs> no, I didn't mean I was going to go two hours. <laughs> All right. Hebrews 12:13 says, Make straight the paths of your feet. That's Proverbs 4:26 from the Septuagint. So that your, the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. So um, this, would, this put out of joint would be like dislocated. I was going to quote Lane. Uh, I just started a new section of that. Four, I'm looking for 427. Here we go. And... Um, <coughs> This, Lane says this is from the Septuagint of Proverbs 4.26. And um, talks about, the, in the context of Proverbs, the mandate to make level paths for your feet and keep your way straight refers to proper conduct under the direction of divine wisdom. The meaning of level, straight, is fundamentally ethical. And then it says this point of reference in this context, is the ultimate goal of faith, which can be reached only through the endurance of stringent tests of faith. Encouraged by the example of the attested witnesses, verse 1, that's everybody in chapter 11, and especially Jesus, verse 2 chapter, of chapter 12, men and women of faith cannot waver but move in a straight direction certain of their goal. So that's the point, is to get your feet on the straight and stay with it. And be encouraged because others have done it and they were, they're, they're the witnesses in the Bible. And then the greatest one to look to is Jesus. So you can keep a straight path. Don't turn to the right or to the left. And that is the, the ethical aspect of Hebrews 12 and verse 13. Now I also wanted to quote this whole thing about uh, out of joint and healed. He also, Lane talks about that. This understanding is reflected in the translation adopted for the commentary so that that which is lame might not be dislocated. That's his translation. And be dislocated, but rather healed. The reference is, is to persons within the house church who have been severely weakened by fatigue for whom the others are to be genuinely concerned. If those who are stronger will move in a straight direction toward the goal, 
the brother or sister who is lame will follow more easily and will be healed of his hurt. The prospect of healing for the weakest of their number adds a word of encouragement to the clear directive of the community. The section is thus brought to a conclusion on a note of redemptive comfort. This reminds me of Matthew 18 where it says that the shepherd goes after the one straying sheep. And so those who are strong stay strong in their witness and they're there in their, in their prayers, in their uh, fellowship, and in their encouragement of one another that the strong community going forward will carry along the weak one because of their, their um, corporate strength. And the weak, the weak lame lamb will be able to survive in this strong community. That's what Lane is saying this means. But if the community itself becomes indifferent about the faith and gets astray, then the weak will just fall off the edge of the earth. Okay? And, and, and frankly, that's, this is my concern about the therapeutic church. I think that in a lot of ways, maybe it's people, I don't know what people's motives are, but they think, well, you know, there's a lot of problems that people have, so we need to have a therapeutic church so we can heal people's problems. But what they're trying to use to heal it is worldly wisdom. Okay, and and the more the therapeutic church is coming from the pulpit, you know how to live a better life type of stuff, then the the big group, the congregation, isn't providing that direction because they're not getting it themselves, and so the the weak aren't carried along by the strong because the strong aren't being fed themselves. Well, then the weak are even in worse shape, and I think it's a self perpetuating cycle because then the church leaders say, "Well, look at all this. We've got." We got so many people's marriages falling apart, so many people having trouble with their kids, we got so many people with mental problems and issues. We'd rather hire some more therapists. And so they called out of the seminary, how many more therapists are you graduating? And that's all they're graduating. They're not calling down and saying, how many theologians do you have? They're not even looking for that. But what they don't realize is if they had the theologians in the pulpit, the flock would be healthier because they're being fed the pure words of God. And the healthy flock could carry along the lame member until there's healing without having to hire a fleet of therapists to resolve the problem that may not even be there if they were preaching a word from the pulpit. Now I'm going to go meet with the, the head of the seminary where I graduated to discuss this next week. So um, I, I, the only reason I, I got this invitation is because... Uh, one of one of their students is demanding a refund because he's being taught false doctrine. <laughs> so so he asked me to come in as a witness. So I don't know. I don't know what's going to come in. I hope if you if, if you don't see me again, uh, I, um, Ryan will preach. Yeah. I'm just taking an econ class that I have there, and this pastor that ends up taking that. So he told us. All first day of class. By the way, another required text is the Holy Bible because I'm going to have a 15 minute Bible study that you have to attend. They'll be on the test right beforehand. And he's going to be teaching us purpose driven. Purpose driven? How's that, how's that a Bible study? Well, he was saying this is an econ class. And econ is about figuring out how to get people from one place to another, figure out their decisions and how we can make them change outcomes. So here, as a press, my goal, you know, I see people here and I want to show them how to get here, which includes that God stuff. Really? And he's going to say we're going to focus on the, the economy as shown in the Bible, what the Bible has to say about economy. Okay. That's interesting. <laughs> well, anyhow, the, um, it's, a, it's an interesting situation, but 
I, I, I don't know how, as an evangelical movement, we lost track of the power of the Word of God to change lives. You know, that, honestly, the, the Bible is powerful. It's, it's life-changing. And if people are fed it, God will work. That's the grace of God at work. And if you get away from that, there's no grace in human wisdom. It might help you temporarily. You know, human wisdom can help you fix a car. Or it might help you save your money, um, you know, if you want to do that. Or it might help you get healthy if you want to eat the right foods. It might help you get in shape if you want to work out. It might help you even have a, some wisdom about how to deal with relationships. But only the Word of God can change your heart and your motives. And the way you have a good marriage is for God to change your heart so that you become a loving, unselfish person there for your spouse. And how-to doesn't change us too many marriages. Well, try doing this and try doing that. Well, I'm not saying it's of no value, but it's of very little value if God doesn't change your heart. Because it's what's in the heart that's causing us all our problems. Right? It's not a lack of how-to. It's a lack of wanting to be a good, godly person and be there for my family rather than doing what I want to do and, and stuff like that. Now, I'm just talking about families. It could be anything. It could be a business. It could be being an employee or whatever it is you're doing. You'll be better at it if you're a godly person and God's working in your heart and he's giving you joy. You'll be more pleasant to be around and... He'll give you motivation to work hard because you're doing it under the Lord, not under men. That's all a side effect. But see, if you take away the Word and the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God at work inside your heart and then just leave the external ideas, sort of a book of Proverbs with no Holy Spirit, then you're just the flesh trying to correct itself. And it's doomed to failure. So that's why I'm such a... And Ryan is just as passionate about means of grace as I am. We believe God will change lives through the means he said he would. And um, if you got all of that and you still need some extra wisdom, fine. Get it wherever you want. You know, you know, Ask somebody for advice. But if you don't have the means of grace, the wisdom is a waste of time. Because you don't have the power to change anyhow. And you don't even want to. All right, so that's how you get this uh, lame uh, in line, is the strong staying in line themselves. <laughs> All right? If the strong are marching forward in God's will and the, 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 the people that come, if they're weak and hurting, are in a safe place. And there'll be people that will be there for them. I'm going to talk about that in the sermon because somebody mentioned last week that all the one-anothers in the Bible. Is that Sam Madrid? Somebody said something about one-anothers. And, and in Sunday school, and I noticed that uh, today's sermon in Second, First Thessalonians 3, it has one another a couple times in there. It's a very important idea in the Bible. Okay, now let's go to uh, Hebrews 12 and verse 14. See how fast we get through these when Keith's not here? <laughs> oh, <laughs> so he's listening on the Internet. <laughs> so whatever he's got, I get to pick on him. It's only fair. I'm sure they thought that when I was in seminary, if I was missed a class, too. I always slowed it down. Just ask Dick. Yeah, ask Dick at Tuesday night. If I'm at the Bible study, it slows it down. Hebrews 12, 14. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Now it's giving us some direction uh, and some exhortation about here's what we need to do. You know, we've been warned about what not to do, which is to grow weary, lose heart, quit, 
give up. But now we're, we're given a positive direction to go. And peace in a biblical sense, uh, at least in this context, means well-being. It would be like the Hebrew word shalom, which meant well-being. And in, in the Old Testament, to have well-being, shalom, you had to be right with God in covenant relationship and uh, in, in trusting God because there's, the Bible says there's no peace for the wicked. Shalom. You can't have well-being. And that's why when we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, we're praying for messianic salvation to come to, the, to Israel. Because they can't have shalom without being right with God. And you can't have, be right with God without Messiah. So when you pray for the peace of Jerusalem, we're not only praying for God's you know, people, which we are, and for the land, which we are, but that there would be messianic salvation, which is the whole goal. Even of the tribulation, even the great tribulation is to lead to what? Salvation for the Jews. Messianic salvation. So that's where peace comes from. Now with all men here, I was going to... um, Where was my... I think I flipped over to another... Yeah, now this one's done. Now I'm... The next section of my lane... 450. All right, here we go. He had an interesting comment on this about what it means by all men. And he thinks it literally should be translated along with everyone. And probably here it means other Christians. That's what he thinks. Not that we shouldn't have peace with all men if possible, as as much as possible, as Paul said. Um, Let me see where I'm coming on that. Okay, here's what he says. Those who enjoy the blessings of the new covenant are to be united in earnestly pursuing the peace that is both a sign and a gift from God. Within the community of faith, there is to be no separation of peace and holiness. If peace binds the community together as the achievement of Christ, holiness is that quality which identifies the community as the possession of Christ. So peace is something we get from Christ. Holiness that we pursue would make it evident that that we have indeed become the Lord's. If we belong to Him, then He is working in our lives to perfect holiness. So and so He takes with all men here in sanctification. See, you're pursuing peace and sanctification. Well, all men aren't pursuing sanctification. So that's why He interprets this to be everyone in the community in this context. So um and let me go on. Christ alone is the one who concentrate, uh, concentrates others to God through his sacrificial death. Holiness is a gift to which it is necessary to respond with our personal yes. Christians are those who have been made holy uh, through Christ. They are consecrated to God as those who belong to the one who makes men and women holy. Hebrews 2.11. In Hebrews, holiness does not possess... Um, in ethical significance, it draws its distinctive nuance from, oh, this is theological talk here, cultic arrangement. By the way, if you ever start reading scholarly stuff, I'll just warn you about this. this. It's not bad, but when they use the term cult or cultic, they don't use it the way we do, or cultus. It, it simply means a group of people with similar religious practices, whatever they may be. So they may use that term for the Old Testament worship. The cultists would be the priesthood and everything that they did. 
it, it isn't like the Mormons or something like that. It's, just, it's a technical scholarly way of using the term. So in case you read a commentary that uses that, you, you know that. Yeah. yeah, you see it all the time. And actually, I'm taking a class at Second Chapter of Judaism right now, and that, that term is used all the time because it just is what they use to define temple and the way it works. Yeah, so the cultus would be the temple in that case. So it's not a it's not a pejorative term. So here, he uses it here. I'm reading Lane. It draws its distinctive nuance from the cultic arrangement concerning the efficacy of Christ's high priestly ministry. It is eschatological in character as the objective gift of Christ achieved through his sacrificial death. Okay, now let's go back to look at it. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification with which no one will see God. Now, sanctification in that sense that Lane is talking about, and I think is correct here, means that you have become the Lord's and you share in His holiness because of the blood atonement, and you're suitable to come before God. Now, that was the big issue earlier in Hebrews. How do you get into the holy place? When God's a holy God and we're sinners and we're likely to die in His presence, how, do, how does it happen that we can ultimately have holiness, that we can see God, that we can go into His presence? Well, it's through this blood atonement that Christ has provided. But... Here, it's looking to the future, okay? So, earlier in Hebrews, it tells us that once for all, the blood of Christ cleanses us from dead works to serve the living God. All right? But here it's saying, pursue that. And so, what it means is we're taking that position that we have in Christ, holy, and looking at it also as a goal, because we want to be like Him, and we want to be perfectly His, ultimately, when He returns. And I'm going to have some verses on that when I preach today, too, because it comes up in Thessalonians. Um, so this, this holiness that we have is not only a position that we have, it's also a goal. All right? And having that for a goal will change our lives. So it's, it's not just trying to be a better person, but it's fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the Holy One who sits at the right hand of God, who we long to see and we long to be with and whom we long to be like. So we pursue holiness in that regard. Now, um, there's been a lot of um, damage done to the term holiness through the holiness movement from a hundred years ago. There's there's this Keswick holiness, and I came under sway of that in when I was in Bible college, and I was very attracted to it. And I thought that that these people had a way to a higher. It used to be called the deeper life, or the holiness. It's also called Keswick holiness. And what it really was was a a different version of a second blessing doctrine that, that certain people had achieved a higher status as Christians because they, they had a superior experience and they had a, a superior process. And people back in eight, from 1890 when this thing began to, I think it still exists. And MacArthur's written against this, by the way. Um, I, and I, and I, did, I agree with MacArthur. There's no two-tier Christianity, right? All, the, all Christians are saints, or they ain't, right? <laughs> I didn't make that up. You heard that before. <laughs> You're a saint or you ain't. Okay? So when you had this idea that there were these superior people that learned the secrets of the deeper life, and then you'd go to hear that, they'd go over to England. It started Keswick, England. Have you heard of that? Yeah, and the interesting thing about all you're talking about, like holiness and how it's... I mean, you know, many of you know I'm writing a book on this very subject right now, and the terms that the Bible uses, like holiness sanctification, uh, purification, 
righteousness. All these, all these terms are really, I mean, they, they're different nuances of the same thing and what Christ has done for us. And what I found, and it's really difficult to write about because you need to balance both things. Absolutely. That when you read the, the scriptures, the, the, the scriptures are continually telling us that it has been accomplished at the work, Amen. At the work of Christ. And, Amen. And it, it's been totally accomplished and it's, it, it is finished, it is accomplished. Our sanctification, our, our, our really our glorification is even almost talked about in the past tense in Romans. But we, there's a, if you just leave that, you're leaving out a whole bunch of biblical evidence that speaks of us being made holy, being made righteous, yes. and ultimately will be made righteous. So it's a process. So you need to take, they're not contradictions. They're what, and it's, it, you need to be able to preach and teach both these at the same time because preaching that we have been made righteous, you're, you're going to take away works righteousness that's been done through Christ. It's, we're, we're not practically righteous. We all know that through our experience. So what has been accomplished is being applied to us right now through a process, and that's how we need to look at it. Otherwise, you run into all sorts of... Right. Well, the, see, the, the problem I have with this Kensic holiness is they think there's some secret experience you can have that's going to make you better than an ordinary Christian. Yeah. Yeah. Or any time you read a book that has the word secret in, in its title, yeah, be run, very run, yeah, run, run away or be very suspicious. Because it's either revealed or it's not. If it is revealed, it's in the Bible. If it's not, then some guy doesn't know the secret. <laughs> Does that make sense? Um, Elizabeth. Yes, um, I also want to bring up um, in uh, uh, chapter, I'm sorry, verse 14, pursuit of peace with all men. That is a very Catholic, um, popish, the, the, the Catholic Church has, has taken that, peace with all men, and said... Well, all men we need to make peace with, and therefore all religions... The other religions, right. yeah. And so we have right. Humanism. Right. And, and, and Lane was saying, uh, Ryan, that this here within the community. Yeah. That the whole even, community would... Did you do the Romans cross-reference? Is it when in Romans... Yeah, Romans says as much as it's within you. As much as it lies within you, right. peace with all men, as much as possible. You know, but, now the, but not through compromise. But he, he's, that, by saying that, he's giving you... There, there are exceptions to this rule. You can't yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay, so uh, the sanctification. So this is a call to holiness. Now, as Ryan was saying, this is real. I'm not saying I'm not an antinomian. An antinomian said there's no rules. We have moral law in the Bible that gives us a thermometer to tell how we're doing as far as pursuing holiness. It's, it's absolutely real, and we need that. We need ethical guidance to know what holiness looks like. But we need to realize that the process is the process of grace, not works. And that it's true for all Christians, not certain elite ones that have a higher order Christianity. And we should always resist any kind of an elitist attitude in us. That This whole sinner saved by grace thing is a good way to understand it. But realizing that this grace is effectual, like Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. But God's grace toward me did not prove in vain. In other words, God really did change his life. But he said, nevertheless, I labor harder than them all. So in one verse he has, it's all of grace, but I take my responsibility. I work. I do what God tells me to do. Now it says, without which no one will see the Lord. Now that's a very serious statement, isn't it? Without holiness, no one will see God. So what's, how are we going to ever see God? We've been made holy. We believe that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so obviously Christians are called 
holy ones. That's what the word saint means in, in the Greek. Holy, because the word for holy. Holy ones are made holy by the blood of Christ. And when they die, they go to be with the Lord. Right? But as long as we're living, we should be pursuing holiness that we more practically like Christ by His grace. So we should pursue it. Now, why do I have a lot of cross-references? Let's see how many we can do here. Um, where should we do this? Well, let's, I want to get this on people that I can stand close to on the tape because they don't have that little mic. Psalm 34, 14. Psalm 133, 1. Proverbs 15, 1, Linda. You don't have a Bible? Pastor doesn't have a Bible. What kind of a... <laughs> he came with a guitar, but no Bible. <laughs> Isaiah 51, 1. Uh, Stephen, Matthew 5, 8 and 9. You had Isaiah 51, 1, Ryan. And then um, Karen, Romans 12, 18. Elizabeth, Romans 14, 19. Let's do that many and see how, how much time we have. So let's go back here. Psalm 34.14. 34.14 is uh, depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Okay, depart from evil, do good, seek peace and pursue it. Remember, shalom means well-being by being right with God, not compromise. All right. Psalm 133.1. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Did you hear that one, Lois? I know. See, she always is the one that says that we used to sing that. <laughs> Behold, how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. You know what? That is absolutely true. I've been accused of not being in favor of unity because I correct error. But I keep saying, no, no, no. Error destroys unity. The truth creates it. You know? And, and so we can't dwell in unity unless we agree in, on the gospel in, in the Word of God. That's what puts, the more we're close to the Word of God, the more unified we get. Proverbs 15 and verse 1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Yeah, that's a tough verse. <laughs> Somebody read that to me when I was a young man and I thought it was hopeless. <laughs> Soft answer turns away wrath. Well, I'm, I always like just to you know, roll up the sleeves and let's fight. So, soft answer. Sometimes if somebody else is angry, don't escalate it. You know, just come back with the truth. You know, I think part of it is actually the better you understand the truth, there's no reason to be angry. I know that's true in a debate. I, when I had that debate with this guy that we were on totally different planets the other day, <laughs> Um, I never really felt angry because he he wasn't saying anything that was any threat to what I believe, you know. And I just was I was I felt frustrated. Like, what can I possibly say that would get us even on something when we're talking about the same thing? But I didn't feel angry about it. You just feel like I felt sad in a lot of ways. And I thought about all those young people that that are they're having an experience and they don't hear the gospel. And, we we did a lot of work. The staff here did a lot of work. We spent a lot of money, and we didn't take an offering, and, and we and it was very expensive before it was all done. But we did it for for I had one primary reason, and that is that all those people in his church that came would hear the gospel, and it was well worth it because they all heard the gospel. But there's no use being angry when. Somebody's in that kind of confusion or bondage. You just got to keep 
speaking the truth in love. Remember what MacArthur said about that? Uh, it really struck a friend of mine who was sitting with likes to get angry, doesn't like, but gets very upset about them. Because if you know God's really believe that he's sovereign, yeah. then, you know, because they said MacArthur got angry at his wife or something. Oh, they said, that, yeah, he doesn't get angry. Yeah, that made, that one made me feel good and guilty. <laughs> yeah, I, I, no, nobody ever came and said that about me. And if you don't got to say it. You know what's a good thing to think about when you're dealing with false teaching is, is to remember grace. It's, it, again, this whole concept of if it wasn't for the grace of God, I'm in the same spot. Absolutely. And I just I heard a I just got an email this morning. I didn't have time to reply back, but it was an interesting email. I got an email from a lady out of Michigan who's been a CIC reader who lost her church to the purpose driven movement, and her and her family have been searching for churches for months and months, and and I don't know if she's found one, but she's been reading about the doctrines of grace, and reading Martin Luther's The Bondage of the Will, and she says this is just it's so obviously biblical, and I never saw this. I never, I couldn't understand this. I always thought it was always us. And she says, just like, why can't it, why can't everybody see this? And I, I and this, it, that's, the real second. that's what Ryan calls it—the real second blessing when you understand God's sovereignty for the first time. But I, what for me, it was like God opened my eyes in 1986, and the Bible came alive like it never was before. And my preaching changed, and it's never been the same since. Because I realized then that what I want to see is God's grace changing lives, not my ideas convincing them to try to do this, that, or the other thing. Because the grace of God is so powerful. So then not everybody here even agrees with me about it, but we've all agreed to say the Bible together, right? But uh, I do recommend reading Martin Luther's The Bondage of the Will, because if it doesn't do, it's readable. It's, it's not it's unlike uh, Edwards that you can almost not read it so complicated, but you can you can read the bondage of the will, and even if you decide you don't agree with Martin Luther, at least you'll have a real clear understanding of what the Reformation was about, because that was the issue, and that's what they anathematized at Trent, because if Rome knew that if salvation was in God's hands and not man's, that they couldn't dispense it how they saw fit. And, and Luther saw that too. If it's in God's hands, the church has no control over it. And, and so he, that's why he fought about the bondage of the will. But if you, if you believe in a gospel based on human ability, then everything Rome did made sense. Yeah, Rome doesn't that. No, they don't. I'm writing an article about it right now, so I'm probably going to lose a bunch of readers. <laughs> but I, I want people to at least know historically that Rome is the only anathematizing uh, Luther's doctrine. And the semi-Pelagianism that most evangelicalism embraces today is not even anathematized, other than they say they believe in salvation by faith alone, but which I guess we would agree on that one. Okay, Isaiah 51.1. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness and who seek the Lord. Look to the rock, from the rock from which you were cut into the quarry from which you were hewn. And the first part of verse 2 is look to Abraham, your father. Interesting. Yeah, thinking back to the promises to Abraham. And salvation by, implicitly salvation. Amen. You know what I said in my article, Ryan? I was quoting Geisler, and I normally like him, but I'm disagreeing with him because he believes in self-determination, the right of self-determination. Where's self-determination in the Bible? Well, anyhow, and he's also, he admits that he's a synergist, that salvation is God and man cooperating. Isn't synergism 
a repudiation of grace alone? I think so. Well, that's what I said. That's a repudiation of grace alone. Because if it's grace plus something, it's not grace alone. So you have grace plus man's cooperation equals salvation rather than grace alone. You know, one thing that I always say is you have two people before the throne room of God at the end, and one believes and one doesn't. And if you don't say that, if you say it was something in them that made them, you know, if one says, well, why were you saved? Well, I'm saved totally by the grace of God. Well, why wasn't that person saved? Well, you have to say, if, if you're saying that, it has to be of totally of grace, because if you don't, if you say that that person is in there because, well, I'm getting in because I saw my need, or I'm getting in because, um, you know, I, I saw something, then that's not totally grace. No, I know, it's something in me. Okay, now let's get these last verses, we're running out of time. Uh, Matthew 5, 8 and 9. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. There you go. Pure in heart and peacemakers, the same concepts we have. And then we have, um, I'm standing over here, so I get, I get this on the tape, all right? Um, I'm not just being annoying. Look, <laughs> 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 you know, when people get too close, they get in your face, and they, you back up, and they get closer, and you get back up, and they get closer. I hate that. Back off! <laughs> Remember when Tony used to do that? We just had to teach him. When, we, when Tony was living with us, that's the way he was. And he was, he was just like this far from me. So finally I go, okay, Tony, that far. Stand right there. But he learned, and then, then he'd do that. You just had to teach him these things. Okay, Romans twelve eighteen Was that it? Yes. Okay. If possible, so far as it depends on you. Be at peace with all men. As far as it depends on you. So in other words, don't just go out being a troublemaker and then say, oh, I'm being persecuted for righteousness' sake, when really you're being persecuted just because you're annoying. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Romans 14, uh, 19. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. All right, pursue the things that make for peace, building up of one another. So... There's a few more we can start, and then we'll go on in. This next week, we're gonna, if you want to study ahead, we're going to talk about this root of bitterness. Very interesting concept. And then Esau, uh, as an illustration of what it would be like to have a root of bitterness. And you might want to do your own study on that and come in with some things you'd like to discuss.